Hi, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Carol King's Tapestry. Micaiah, what do we need to know right up front about the best-selling album of 1971? It is Carol King's second album um that kind of functions as a trilogy um she had a a group called the city and had an album out called now that everything's been said it was kind of like a mamas and the papas kind of thing um and then she had a record come out in 1970 it was called writer right because i mean that's her identity right she's a writer um but still very much sonically was like the album by the city uh and then this record comes out and it's mostly new material and a couple of things from her her back catalog is just the i mean the biggest success of 1971 we've already done an episode on 1971 of all the great records ranging from harry nelson to you know yeah funkadelic everybody has a great record out that year or they're working on a record that's going to come out in 72 right i mean there's just something in the water at this time and yet nothing sells better than this record and nothing uh, performs better at the Grammys than this record and nothing. I, I don't know that anything continues to sell as well. I mean, Zeppelin four sold really well also, but I think this record um, has been, is this has the is number two for like most consecutive weeks on the billboard yeah. 100. Yes. I mean, 318 total weeks. Yeah. On, on the, on the billboard 100 albums list. The only album that has, that has stayed on the list longer is pink Floyd's uh, dark side of the moon. Dark side of the moon. Yeah. So not thriller, right? One and two are not thriller and purple rain. They're dark side of the moon and tapestry. Yeah. You know, so we we're, this is a giant one. This is one that we, you know, arguably maybe should have done already. I mean, this is a beloved uh, record. So Rob, this is also a special one for you and I, because when I got my first little record player, um, I graduated college and then got dumped um, as long time. You forgot one listeners will know from our blood on the tracks episode. You gave me a copy of tapestry. My, my vinyl copy that I have on my shelf now is the copy that you gave me. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me, I mean, that's always a great honor when someone gives you one of their favorite records. Um, you know, so I, I do love, I love to have it just because you gave it to me, especially in that, that context. And it was a very comforting album for me at that time when I put it on and in grad school, I remember working on some papers and just kind of like having it on in the background. But um, admittedly, you know, this is not one of my favorite records. Uh, It's not in my top 100. Uh, It's not in my top 250. It's just not an album that has meant much to me. And that's because like, my mom didn't really care for it. So, you know, as a kid, this is not what I was hearing. Um, So there's never been that kind of connection for me, even though these songs have been inescapable. I feel like, and I can't even prove this. This might not even be true, but I feel like I know all the songs from like Nora Ephron movies, but I feel like they were also not just in movies, but I feel like they were in a lot of movie trailers. Yeah. You know, I, I can't, this is probably not true that all these songs appear in the trailer for like 
first wives club but that's kind of like the vibe the album has always given me so like i want to i want to make maybe the most embarrassing confession i have ever made on our podcast oh boy uh, look covid was hard on all of us it, you know it, it still is hard on all of us um and everyone dealt with lockdown differently mm-hmm Lockdown became an opportunity to binge watch shows I had never seen when they first came out. And I have to admit to you and to our listeners that I binge watched Gilmore Girls. Okay. During during COVID. Beloved show by by many, many people. Yeah, beloved show for sure. And I will tell you, I think every song Carol King has ever written appears <laughs> over the course of the entire series of that show. Believable. And in, 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 in some ways, I think maybe part of the reason that some people, uh, and you're not alone in this, I think, I think part of the reason that some people don't value tapestry, maybe the way that others do, Part of it is an exposure thing, which which is understandable. I, I think that for a lot of people in my generation and in your generation, their exposure to tapestry came through a mother listening to it, mm-hmm. and so it look it's it's a very kind of domestic album, and it has that quality. And so if you add to that the idea that most of us were introduced this music through our mothers, like it just has this kind of warm maternal vibe, which, which I think, I think really works. And so it's, it's an album that is comforting, but, but I think like probably also falls, you know, I think most people, most people who are part of like my kids generation would listen to this album today and think of it as easy listening music that kind of does just fade away into the background. Rob, I bet they wouldn't even use that language. They would probably now just call it, oldies yeah probably but but all anyways all that to say like i i think that there is some pushback to this album stylistically but i challenge anyone to listen to this album and discover what you and i both know which is whether you intended to or not whether you tried to or not you're familiar with half this album already. You know most of the words to the choruses to half of this album, even if you've never intentionally sought this album out. That's how ubiquitous this album is. I mean, you say that there's, you know, this pushback, but if we look at the most recent Rolling Stone 500 list, as we like to, do you number know 25. Number 25. That's high. Um, number 24 is Sgt. Pepper. Number yeah. 25 is tapestry um and then number 26 is horses by patty smith and listen i'm patty smith horses over tapestry every time um just when i'm looking at those two um but no i mean 25 is that's high that's very high um you know so this is that's also in fairness. So that's also a, it's a big jump that it's taken since since the iteration of this list, which I think is also one of the things that has happened. You know, when we talked about the the different iterations of the Rolling Stone list, the thing that I I'm I'm appreciative of of the 2020 list is Rolling Stone was very intentional about bringing in a more diverse group of voices, and I think as more women played a role in in putting the list together 
I think that's where you do see an album like Tapestry, you know, it kind of come up the ranks because there are, I mean, in, in many ways, there's a whole generation of female musicians that have at least in part been influenced by this album. Yeah, no, no, without a doubt. So, Makai, we're going to talk about Tapestry. We're going to talk about an album that you and I both recognize as a great album. It's also an album that I personally love a great deal. But we're not going to talk about this album alone. We have with us the guy who literally wrote the book on Carol King's Tapestry. He wrote the 33 and a third volume on Carol King's Tapestry. He is a doctor of literature at the University of Iowa. He is Dr. Lauren Glass, and we're going to have him with us on the podcast in just a few moments. But first, we're going to take a break, and we're going to let you hear from our independent record store of the week located in Iowa City, Iowa, and from our sponsor, Anchor. And then we'll be back with Dr. Lauren Glass. Record collector in downtown Iowa City. I, I am there weekly. Um, they are just a priceless community resource. Um, and I recommend that all Iowa Cityans uh, uh, make a visit. That's Record Collector in Iowa City, Iowa, located at 116 South Lynn Street, zip code 52240. They're open Wednesday through Monday, and you can reach them online at recordcollector.co, or you can give them a phone call at 319-337-5029. So let's start here. When did you first become familiar with Carol King and with Tapestry? What what was your kind of entree to this record? Well, as I uh, open in my book, this is actually one of my earliest musical memories and one of my earliest memories of an album cover. Uh, my mom was a lesbian feminist, um, still is a lesbian feminist, um, had recently left my dad. Um, and there were a number of, of classic albums um, uh, from this era, from Joni Mitchell's uh Blue to Aretha Franklin, Roberta Flack, Chris Williamson, uh, a lot of women's music, what, what, you know, was coming to be called women's music. And um, I 
vividly remember, although as I've written about it, the memories have weirdly faded into the recording of the memories. So I, you know, I, I have a number of memories of, of the album being played both in my presence or while I was in my bedroom or, or however. And I think like many people, it, unlike some of the other albums where the memories are a little more sort of uh, fragmentary and, and distant, um, the key the, the classic songs from from tapestry never left my consciousness i i i i don't think i listened to them a lot when i was you know when i was a teenager or older i certainly i mean i have my mom's album now and i have returned to it periodically um but it's you know it's been um part of my musical repertoire it's one of the earliest parts of my uh, of my musical repertoire, along with a lot, you know, I mean, my parents listened to Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones and uh, all of that stuff. And I, I do, um, I think I'm of a generation that grew up in a weird sort of uh, uh, collaborative, cooperative music environment with my parents instead of, you know, listening to things they hate or, or, or vice versa. We, we shared a lot. I remember listening to American Pie. That was a big song on the, on the radio um, when, when I was a kid. But, you know, it's a childhood memory, uh, as it is for many people. I, you know, once I studied the history of the album, it was astonishing to me uh, how many people remembered this uh, because their mother or even grandmother um, uh, had had listened to it. I have struggled in a lot of ways to to appreciate Joni Mitchell's Blue as much as I appreciate Tapestry. And part of that is I, I don't know how much of it is that the album is better or because there is such a maternal quality to this album because of what my exposure was. And it sounds so, like you, you and I have that in common. I'll tell you that it's not because the album's better because the better album is blue. <laughs> I, I love this discussion. And I just have to say, Rob, I shared your, so tapestry stayed in my memory and my, uh, you know, musical consciousness all this time. Blue, I remembered the cover, but not the music. Um, and even since I, I mean, I appreciate the genius of Joni Mitchell, but I have to be in the right mood to listen to it. And it doesn't hook in as automatically, although I've been convinced by my peers to acknowledge that Joni Mitchell's the one that sort of rivals Dylan, whereas Carol King is sort of in this separate category of having produced this one album that is so magical. But um, but people do. It's not that they dismiss it musically. It's that they don't call Carol King a genius in the same way that they see Joni Mitchell. And I think you're absolutely right. And I mentioned this in my book that, right, Joni Mitchell actually at this point was being called uh, the old lady of the canyon. She was famous for being, you know, the super sexy, incredible, you know, but also brilliant uh, girlfriend of all of these guys. Whereas uh, Carol King pretty firmly situated herself in this maternal um, image and role that made her uh, easier to listen to, one might say. I mean, in some ways, it's the challenge is different. I mean, you don't you don't have to work to appreciate Carol King, whereas a certain way you need to key your ear to uh, to get fully what Joni Mitchell is doing. And it's so fascinating. This little triangle here, I had this not that long ago, a discussion with my mom and her current partner. And my mom also said she couldn't quite always, you know, 
tune into Joni Mitchell, but her partner was like, Joni is the thing. You know, I mean, Joni, they don't even compare, right? I mean, it's Joni, and then there's a bunch of other sort of satellites. I, I mean, they're both incredible albums, and of course, they were made just a few blocks from each other, and 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 Joni Mitchell uh, is featured on uh, mm-hmm. on Tapestry, and they, they knew each other and supported each other. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, Joni is an artist with a capital A in a way that, you know, it's not just that they had different images in terms of, I don't know, girlfriend versus mother, uh, but there's a way also in which um, Carol King was a songwriter in the old fashioned professional way, right? I mean, she had worked in the Brill Building world. Um, She had, you know, made these AM hits on the radio, right? I mean, Joni Mitchell famously, you know, would never, you know, only made a joke song about being on the radio. That was just not what she was about. So um, I, I, I love and appreciate both of them, but Rob, I've, I've shared your sense of the Carol King record. I can actually spool out of my brain from memory practically, and I can always listen to it. And, and Joni Mitchell's more of a sort of mountain to climb and a, and a challenge to, uh, to engage. And I, I, you know, and I, I appreciate that difference, but it's not really a value judgment. I mean, I, they're, they're different kinds of, of artists. Yeah. And I think that's important to say is that, you know, again, we're, this isn't, this isn't a statement of value judgment. This isn't saying that one's better than the other or that, you know, Carol King is better than Jenny Mitchell. It's just saying that maybe there is an accessibility to tapestry yeah. that, that may not be there for, for blue or for, for other similar, you know, again, you were talking about a number of, female artist of, of this time in Carol King, again, because the background is, you know, she's a hit maker. She's someone who's, she's already, you know, by the time this album comes out, she's already um, written a number one hit for James Taylor and a number one hit for Aretha Franklin, you know, that she's, she's got some history of, of, of writing the radio friendly hit in, in a time when a bunch of other people are way more concerned about pushing the envelope and artistically moving it forward. And so it is, two different things so far away doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore it would be so fine to see your face at my door doesn't help to know you're just time away long ago ask you this you have of, of all of your um academic writing and all of your published work and you have published a ton and we're going to give you an opportunity later on in the podcast to tell us about uh, um, one of your one of your works that has gone to paperback and we want to make that available for our listeners 
but this is the album you chose to write about for 33 and a third. So what interested you, what interested you in tapestry as the subject for this book? It was a little bit serendipitous. I started going to the um, EMP uh, pop music um, meeting. Uh, it, it happens in uh, Seattle um, every year. I, I then I think it still does. Um, there's a big uh museum and uh, uh, set up there that was, I think it's Microsoft money actually. But anyway, um, I had a colleague who used to go to that and I was interested in um, tagging along with him. And um, I started working on a project, not on Carol King, but on what I was thinking of as the album era. In other words, what is the significance of the, and by the album era, right, the long playing, 12-inch LP, uh, um, you know, it was only the dominant format really for 10 or 20 years, right? I, from, uh, uh, I mean, it depends. There's a sort of longer version and a shorter version. Um, and uh, I started trying to think of um, how one would historically understand um, a, a period based on a musical platform or, a, you know, or a, a, a medium uh, mm -hmm. like that. And um, one of the concepts I started to think about was the idea of the Buildings album, the idea that albums were signs of maturity and growing up, um, right? 45s were about kids and teenagers. And then in uh, with, you know, with Sgt. Pepper, the album, the album became the artistic platform of, of serious uh, pop music artists. And um, and I, I was trying to think about how that might have um, informed how people who lived during that time grew up themselves. In other words, did you, you, know, you sort of grew up along with Bob Dylan or you grew up along with Joni Mitchell and you, the, the album spoke to you. And so the album that I used as an illustration of the album era when I would give this talk was Tapestry. Um, but it was just like a hook. I would talk about listening to tapestry and with my mom and, and, and how, what it meant to her. And then I would segue into a longer sort of, of theory analysis of, of albums generally and how they, how they did this. Um, but people would rush up to me after the talk and would be fascinated with tapestry and also want to hear, they would be fascinated with two things. One, people would come up and say, I know that album by heart. I love that album. I'm so right. And other people would come up to me and say, what was it like to grow up being raised by a lesbian feminist in the seventies? That's so fascinating. Tell me more about your life. Mm -hmm. um, so um, those were, that was sort of knocking around in my head as a relationship when um, I became aware of the 33 and a third series. And uh, I had a friend who had published um, uh, the, the one on uh, Blondie's parallel lines, Cameron McLeod. Let me give a shout out for him. He's an amazing uh, uh, media theorist and uh, communication scholar. Um, and so I, I just decided to, to pitch one. And I have to say, I was a little skeptical that I would get it because I'm male and I figured somebody must've sort of had it cornered, you know, some, somebody must have this one already. Um, and, uh, and it's, and I, I actually don't know whether anyone ever did apply, but, um, so, you know, I, I pitched it and, and they didn't say no. Um, they didn't say yes immediately. We had to go back and forth on it. And, um, I had various readers who, uh, initially who helped me really a lot to, to shape it. Um, and, uh, and then it ended up being a way for me to think through 
um, not only my my childhood and my mother's life growing up, um, but also um, sort of unexpectedly to talk about um, celebrity, which is something I have also written. So my first book was about literary celebrity and the way in which Carol King um, became famous and dealt with celebrity, mostly reluctantly, um, and just all in a more general way, the role of um, sort of artist celebrities in the singer songwriter era right i mean the, the appeal that they had as individuals above and beyond right i mean because carol king i mean the music was obviously the appeal but it was also the i she seemed um autonomous she was this you know i mean she actually had men that i mean you know, she had some difficult relations with men and you know and was obviously co-songwriter with coffin but the way that they, they never appeared in the publicity around her. She seemed like a single mother that is what she is, how mm -hmm. she seemed uh, in the, in the public eye. And, um, and that was revolutionary, right? She was a single mother who had um, written and recorded this album, right? She wasn't, you know, playing other people's songs. Uh, so it was really groundbreaking in ways that, by the way, in ways that I didn't know, of course, at all when I was six and listening to it, right? I mean, I had no idea about the songwriting career with Jerry Goffin or any, you know, I mean, I, it was just those, those eight or 10 songs, like, you know, that, that um, uh, really more indelibly in my, there's only probably five or six albums that I, that I have that, you know, that I sort of feel I could really almost remember the whole thing if I sat down for that amount of time. Stayed in bed all morning just to pass the time There's something wrong here, there can be no denying One of us is changing, or maybe we just stop trying And it's too In many ways, 1971 is kind of the definitive year of the album era that, that really, I mean, you think about, um, you know, Rolling Stone has, has done now three different iterations of their top 500 albums of all time list. In every iteration of that list, 1971 is the leading year of having albums in the top 100 and overwhelmingly so. I mean, 1971 often has eight or nine albums that make the top 100. No other year has more than three. And well, yeah, you're yet, you're yet again affirming a similarity of our thinking. I, I did end up writing an, uh, an article, a sort of academic article on uh, the album era for a larger anthology on uh culture and plastics. Um, but I did an actual, um, I uh, ran a spreadsheet of the, uh, of the Rolling Stones best 500 in order to show precisely what you've shown. There's a big, right, curve <laughs> peaking in 1971 of the, the best album. So there's no doubt that it's not just, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, a critical consensus that's relatively undisputed. I mean, there's other, um, I, I redid it for the, when they, when they redid the, uh, the best 500, there's another bump in the eighties, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is around rap. Uh, and, yeah. um, and, um, but, uh, uh, and I talk about that a little bit that, that rap 
literally repurposed the album, not just in terms of making blockbuster albums, but in terms of sampling the classic albums from the album era on on their albums. But yes, 1971 is the whatever, Annis Mirabilis or however you say it. Um, uh, I, I, I sort, sort of in... I mean, it's not really a very effective metaphor, but I, I thought about one way I thought about the album there is literally a shaped like a record with the spindle hole in 1971. Right. And it sort of spins out um, uh, in both directions. But the one thing, the thing I wanted to bring up is in 1971, you have all of these iconic albums that come out, but the best selling album of the year <laughs> And the winner of all the year-end awards swept everything. Yes, is Carol King's Tapestry. Yep. What separates Tapestry from all of these other huge, I mean, genre-defining, you know, era-defining albums that come out in 1971? But in the moment, if you lived through 1971, Carol King's Tapestry was on top. Yep. Yep. Um, there's probably a number of factors, although I'm tempted to say, and I, I, without, you know, with no value that the, what we were just talking about in terms of easy listening, (laughs) um, is that it was, I think it was, there was sort of an immediate consensus that this was somehow listenable, but not in a dismissive way, right? That this was something we could all hear. Some people have said, and I don't know whether this is, you know, so there was an overall turn to soft rock during this period, right? So uh, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, uh, uh, Carol King were all pretty mellow and easy to listen to compared to some of the rock and roll that came um, before. And some people have actually mentioned, you know, post Vietnam, post sixties burnout, everyone, you know, people needed something reassuring. People needed something um, easy to listen to. Um, There might be also something to be said. um, And again, not to diminish Carol King at all, um, but for the production uh, of, uh, of Lou Adler and, and the, the studio, the session folks who worked around him that, um, there was a scene growing in uh, Laurel Canyon at this time or had had grown. I mean, it was sort of peaking. And this album sort of consolidated that scene. So one could almost say that the, the album's triumph was right. So the other right. The best song was, in fact, James Taylor's uh, cover of um, You've Got a Friend. Um, and so in a way, it was also um, the coronation of the Laurel Canyon scene and the Laurel Canyon sound and the singer songwriter idea. But then actually also, and I I think this was, this is crucial to the album's appear in its staying power is that she was the only one to rope back around into the early sixties in the album. So the album was, pure 1971, but it also spoke to the childhood and the earlier age of all the people who were listening to it, whether they knew that or not, I think. Um, and so it, it, it didn't just encompass the year, it sort of encompassed how people had grown into that year or how they, 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 they become that. I, I think that, and again, I didn't know these details uh, until later on um, listening and, and studying the album that it, in some ways encapsulates the whole history of the album era up to then in a way that no other album could or did. Right. I mean, other albums were songs that had been written then by the people, you know, I mean, no one, no one had the um, archive that Carol King had. Um, and then no one had the, the, 
perfect production situation uh, and partner with uh, with Lou Adler and 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 this the whole cultural scene that was um, that was going going on at that at that time. I don't think it's ever happened since that an album has swept the Emmys. Uh, not the Emmys, sorry, the Grammys, uh, to that to that ex- that extent. I mean, obviously, there's been big, you know, major uh, hits and phenomenon, but uh, you know, it got um, all of the major categories at the, 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 at that time. Sometimes I wonder if I'm ever gonna make it home again. It's so far and out of sight. thing I, I mentioned in, in my book is Tapestry survived all the platform and media changes. So every time there was a change in the musical ecology, you know, when people shifted to CDs, when people went to downloads, when people, there was a big spike <laughs> in in Tapestry. It would uh, it would it would take off again. Um, so, I mean, there are other albums that I probably like more from 1971. I have to say, uh, After the Gold Rush is one of my favorite albums ever. I, I love Sticky Fingers. Um, uh, and those, um, but again, those albums registered the maturation of rock without having the adolescence built in <laughs> to the cycle. So I, I really think that it was that. And then I guess also I would, I would additionally say on that, and, and this with, I guess both a celebratory but a semi-critical eye. Um, it represented, it was way entirely by white people, right? Lou Adler's white. I mean, at, at this point, the you know Laurel Canyon scene is as as white as white can be. Um, but Carol King's sound came from a whole racial mimicry and sharing and racial collaboration era that I think also, and I, I base this partly not on my own ear, but on the ear of the music critics from the time who all recognized the R&B antecedents um, to Carol King's uh, sound. Um, and uh, it may have been also that um semi-conscious resonance uh you know of 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 the kind of of um cross-racial cross-racial heritage i mean in a sense all these albums embody it to one degree or another uh but there's something about carol king's uh deeper embeddedness in the in the actual collaborations around around you know when you know when Basically, a lot of Jewish white songwriters wrote for R&B, African-American singers and those. And but more. But oh, even that, I mean, you know, the 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 when the when the Shirelles came out with um, uh, um, Will You Still Love Me? It actually was on a, a singles label that was owned by an African-American woman. Right. I mean, there was there was a little more looseness overlap in the inter- in the industry then ironically than there would be after uh i think i mean i'm, I'm not a, an expert on this but i'm just thinking that the uh the the cross-racial elements of tapestry that were again not 
directly visible and audible to people may still have been an element in its um, popularity. I mean, one thing I was thinking of, we talked about this when we, um, we did Van Morrison, we did Astral Weeks versus Moondance. And I think this album fits in pretty well with, with Moondance and that like post, like the hippies have like left the communes. They're starting their own homes they're starting families and a lot of that's because of like the band and music from big pink and Dylan in this time. Also like the album new morning from 1970 is very, very domestic. And so Tupelo honey by Van Morrison um, follow suit. And I just think that this album is probably like the epitome of that, like, post sixties domestic gets her in a house with a cat. That's the album cover It's called tapestry. Like it's so just like, it, it could be just be called like quilt your mom made like, <laughs> like Oh, you, you nailed it. But what, and I talk about this in my book and, but what's fascinating, it was, it was a new domesticity, right? So it was, mm-hmm. it was a post hippie domesticity. And this was of course, you know, particularly embodied in the California lifestyle that was sort of, you know, just being popularized and mainstreamed, I think, at this time. But um, one of the things I comment on, and and I didn't invent this, this was, you know, I read this from prior critics of of King, is she helped the post-feminist, post-hippie generation redefine what home meant. I mean, people still had this domestic desire. They wanted to raise kids together. They wanted to own houses. They wanted to cook food in their kitchen. You know, I mean, they, they, they had certain ideals that were certainly counted as domestic. Um, the more utopian elements had failed. Uh, you know, I mean, the sixties was over in a, in a, in a certain way. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there was a, there was a creepier side to this. I talk a little bit about the mamas and the papas who were also uh, present in this era and, and actually worked closely. John Phillips was, a collaborator and inspirer of, of, uh, of Lou Adler. Um, but the idea being, um, can we raise kids in some other, um, less patriarchal, less limiting, less, you know, confining, uh, domestic scene. Um, and, uh, I feel like that's the, it was that challenge and struggle that, um, produced my generation, at least those of us who, um, whose parents were, you know, shaken up by the movement as, you know, and my parents were both in the movement as they called it. And, um, uh, there was a sort of world of, um, of, you know, communes, experimental living, uh, certainly, uh, open marriages and various attempts at things, many of which failed, didn't work so well. I mean, it was, you know, it was a <laughs> bittersweet, I guess, on that. But Carol King, I think, and I talk about this, she seemed like this successful single mother, so she could be domestic, um, but she also was the moneymaker <laughs> um, and the the primary parent. Um, and uh, that was a powerful image but i think you're right the 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 idea that uh in fact there was a more general cultural move which was expressed in the music uh and the albums of that era and of course it it correlated with how old the people were too right they were now old enough (laughs) 
to start actually having kids sometimes whether they wanted to or not and and so their albums uh which were again buildings albums they were albums about how they were growing up who they were becoming and um so they started to address what it was like to have kids settle down be in a be in a house and i think you're absolutely right it lines up with um uh, ben Morrison, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, uh, you know, they, it, it was a, it was a general generational turn uh, and it was expressed in a lot of these um, uh, canonical albums. You got to get up every morning with a smile on your face and show the world all the love in your heart. Then people gonna treat you better. You're gonna find, yes, you will. That you're beautiful as you feel Waiting at the station with a workday window blowing I've got nothing to do but watch the passers-by Mirrored in their faces I see frustration Also, what kind of like makes it the epitome like of those albums is, is that there's also some like baked in nostalgia by having like already two proven mega hits, but reinterpreted. You know, f- I mean, finally with the voice of the original songwriter, which is maybe what's most interesting about you know those compositions. But um, you know, through this this new you know kind of era defining sound you know the stripped back piano um and it, it's yeah it's a little moon dancey but there are parts where it's a little more like astral weeks um with the flute and these like really yeah. high bass notes and stuff you know so but it, the way it's mixed though it still mix like a like a pop album and that the instrumentation right is least important right the vocals always have to be front center in the mix so a lot of like the flourishes that you're getting from you know van morrison through moon dance and saint dominic's preview you're not getting them you gotta gotta really listen for them to get them in tapestry it's not there to to show off you know what what's there to be shown off is carol king singing her songs on her second you know solo record that's the importance of the album so for me it's always been kind of like one that's not as interesting as other albums from the era because the instrumentation is is buried in the mix. Yep. So it's funny that y'all say like, oh, you know, like Joni, you have to try harder to get into it. <laughs> but for me, I have to like actually try harder to like be like, oh, okay, so there's some like interesting ha- stuff happening in this mix. It's just like really low, especially on the original record. I think in some, when I was streaming it, listening to it through headphones, it was uh, the mix is very different, but going back and listening on the turntable through my speakers, 
I was like, oh, I can't really hear like some of the stuff that I listen to, uh, like the remaster that's like available now when you stream it. But so that's, so that's that always was, that, was, that was Adler's deliberate decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, he had uh, he had originally heard um, Carol King. Uh, on demos that he'd gotten when he visited New York earlier, uh, looking for songs, you know, when he was just starting to be a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was Adler's deliberate decision, I'm sure, with obviously with King. In contrast, if you've ever listened to Writer, which is the album that came before it, which is sort of overproduced and has a moog and has a bunch of sort of uh, uh, yeah. other stuff, which sort of buries Carol King. And I think the the decision was really, was deliberately for better or worse. Uh, and that, I mean, mostly better, but I, I think you're right that um, even uh, like James Taylor's guitar uh, um, tracks are played down to a point where you have to like, eh, you know, I mean, in the live, you hear more of what, how he actually is, uh, is contributing. Um, and that was the sign that was, they were looking and this, in some ways, this goes back to the domestic idea. It almost sounded like someone playing piano in your house and singing, right? It wasn't, mm. it was so mixed down uh, that, and he, he said this, he, he mixed it and sequenced it for a person sitting alone in their room. And I think that, and actually I talk about this a little bit too, in some ways it harkens all the way back to before electronic music, when all you had was a piano, <laughs> right? I mean, before radio and, and right, when, when that was the way that music was played in the house was, some, you know, someone in the family played piano and uh, you would get sheet music from songs. Actually, sheet music from Tapestry was, was pretty popular. So um, the stripped down uh, uh, mix was, was deliberate on, on Adler's part. And um, I argue that it also... Um, had a quasi-feminist element in that it subordinated male supporting musicians to the foreground of the, you know, the woman on uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the piano. Um, As far as the nostalgia being baked in, that's fascinating. And I've thought a lot about this uh, in terms of the album era as a whole. Um, I frequently think of, you know, the opening line of Sgt. Pepper. It was 20 years ago today. (laughs) Like the classic (laughs) album of the album era has some weird nostalgia, you know, sort of built into its, its whole rhetorical, you know, the way it introduces itself and its, its rhetorical struggle. And it could be that um, certain albums of the album era um, have front loaded the nostalgia in some way. I would have to, I, I mean, I'm still struggling with that thought, but you're, you're mentioning it made me just, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I want to um, chime in on, on that one, but I agree with you about the, the tapestry mix and that, that was um, again, that was, that was uh, intentional. And I do think that um Particularly when you listen to writer before it, it's it seems also uh, like a telos of the other albums. Like finally you get this woman and her piano, uh, and then as as I may I make this point in the um, in the book, she staged this. Then when she performed, she would perform and she would always start by herself. With I feel the earth move, uh, and then she would go through songs and supporting folks, usually men, would sort of come in one by one to support her until it was a full band. And then it would shrink down again and she would open with, uh, you make me feel like. So there's a way in which Tapestry, and I think this again, Tapestry then, I mean, she could never get out from under Tapestry. Was all, I mean, it was that, that was, it defined her whole career and it, 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 it scripted a certain sort of narrative for her, um, mm-hmm. 
performances uh, um, as as well. Tapestry defines Carol King and in, in becomes as it becomes the album for her as a performer, as an artist that she she can't really ever move move beyond. But for for our listeners who may maybe not familiar with Carol King's backstory, Carol King starts professionally writing music at 16 years old at 17 marries Jerry Goffin, her, her writing partner. They write between 1959 and 1968, essentially between her being 17 and 20 and 26, the amount of music they write together, just to give you an idea, Carol King to date is the most successful female songwriter. She has written or co-written 118 Billboard Hot 100 singles. Yep. That's the career. So she has basically a teenage and early 20s full of nothing but writing hits for other artists. And then after her 1968 divorce of Jerry Goffin, she begins to actually perform the music that she's writing. Yep. And she goes from being songwriter behind, you know, very kind of in, in the lab, writing music, sending it out for other artists to perform. She goes from songwriter to performer. And that transition for her, not is it's not just a transition for her from from songwriter to artist it's not just behind the scenes to front of the stage but it does also demonstrate an evolution that happens for her in her songwriting knowing that these are going to be songs that she's going to be performing herself so can you talk to us a little bit about that evolution from the hits that she's writing with Jerry Goffin in the 1960s to what we get in 1971 as tapestry. Well, one fundamental arc that I trace in that is, and it's sort of implicit in what you just said, uh, is from girlhood to womanhood, right? I mean, she was very young when she wrote with Goffin, but not just she was very young. She wrote songs that were seen as, you know, they were for the girl group. So they were four boys. They were four teenagers. They were associated with youth. Uh, they appeared on AM radio and it was, you know, it was about youth culture. Um, and then, you know, Tapestry was an album for adults, for a, a adult women by an adult woman. Um, and yet it still it had the ballast and the past of the stuff she had written before uh, baked in. And I, and I do think that, so first of all, I totally agree with you. I mean, Carol King in some ways straddles, you know, the whole history of popular music during this time in a way that very few other people did. So I, I you know, I mean, there's no doubting that. Um, but at the same time, and I guess sort of ironically in the popular mind, she's known for one album, right? I mean, and a lot of people don't even know the ones in the past, but somehow I think all of that feeds into that album. I mean, there's some way in which you can hear the, you know, not just in the two songs, you know, they're actually from that era, uh, but in, um, in the songwriting, in the chops, in the studio you know, in the way that it's mixed and recorded, that um, that past uh, is is imminent uh, in that uh, and that record and is is what um, uh, sustains it. Um, and then, of course, uh, I, I think um, it's also crucial to add on this level that um, it also made her, um, although she 
still struggle with this, but, you know, it made her economically secure, right? It made her, you know, she had no trouble finding uh, a house in LA and buying it and, uh, um, and, and, and living, you know, I mean, she never, she had to support her exes, not vice versa. She yeah. was the, the, the breadwinner and the, and that, um, that began with those songs with that as a, as a profession, as a trade. Uh, and I think she always, I mean, songwriting was that, you know, I mean, she was a reluctant performer. Um, and actually she was never, she was a reluctant lyricist too. I, you know, if you go to the later albums, she kept looking for uh, lyricists with varying degrees of success. Uh, you know, she was a tunesmith. Um, she, knew how to work her way around a piano to write a song, um, you know, from when, like, you know, from when she was 16. I mean, that was when she first went to Manhattan to try and hawk her wares. Um, and, uh, you know, that all, there's a way though, in which unlike most artists, things sort of spiral into that one album um, in a, you know, in a sort of in, incomparable, I mean, there are obviously lots of people who had only one album, but, um, but th there's a way in which this sort of consolidated both her life and the lives of her, you know, her cohort, um, mm. in a way that, that, um, you know, just wasn't, it, it needed that specific, <laughs> uh, biography, that, that, that specific backstory that, um, few other people had. And actually, I mean, a lot of the people who were the, in the songwriting, uh, um, you know, in those uh, cubicles in the back, you know, never fully did cross over in the, in quite the same. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, Randy Newman, Neil Diamond, Paul Simon was in that world then too. Uh, but all of those folks, I mean, they, they made money there, but they did fine, but um, it was sort of shouldered aside by, uh, by rock and, and, and then by, and, and by more sort of resolute singer songwriters. Um, she, her career is unique in its, in its structure, I think. Um, and uh, yeah. Way over yonder Is a place that I From a hunger and cold And the sweet tasting good life Is so easily found I was thinking of a few things uh, thinking about carol king and having the number one like pop record you know in america maybe the world i don't know i don't know those numbers um but to be a big giant pop star or kind of become a pop star and not just a writer uh in your early 30s is pretty unique that's pretty interesting already and to do it without having to be like a fashion icon 
Yep. Or a sex symbol, you know, but just like on the merits of the songs themselves. You know, I think that's that's pretty appealing. It it must be for for aspiring artists. Um, I couldn't agree more. And actually that you're you're I I talk about this, but actually maybe not in the precise framework that you're saying there, which is that not only did she control her career, she controlled her public image. She refused to do right. She said, I'm going to be private. I'm not going to go out there and give interviews. I'm not going to appear in flashy outfits or do, you know, I mean, she was resolute. And what's amazing and remarkable is that the people around her, both directly around her managing image, her image, but also her fans, everyone celebrated that. Right. She was seen as the stay at home mom who was also this hit celebrity. Right. And so the respect for her as as a mother, as wanting to stay, um, you know, stay home and raise her kids, uh, you know, she instead of that, instead of celebrity threatening that she turned it into her celebrity. Now, it is worth noting that she eventually left L.A. and went in essentially into hiding. Right. For 10 or 20 years, she she retreated to Idaho. Um, and that's a whole other amazing sort of stage in in her life um but arguably in some ways she was if not escaping celebrity escaping the la scene and the kind of you know uh heated up media universe that it was that it was but it's really true that she um she was resolute in wanting to uh limit um, even touring, uh, right. Much less, uh, interviews. And, and of course I couldn't get an interview <laughs> with, you know, there's no question of that. Um, uh, but, but instead of people resenting her about that, I think it, it defined her image and made her, made people love her image. And as I think you were noting there was also a model for other, uh, women, the only analog I can think of, and in some ways it's totally different, but in some ways it's the same. I was just watching the, uh, um, the biographical documentary on Tina Turner. Uh, and when she left Ike, uh, Clive Davis said to her, well, well, what do you want to be? And she said, well, I want to be like Mick Jagger and David Bowie. And I was like, you're a 40 year old African-American woman uh, from this, you know, this time. And, but she did it. I mean, she became like David Bowie and Mick Jagger um, and, you know, whatever, more power to her. I mean, I, I, again, it's it, it's a little bit the exception that proves the rule, I suppose. But, um, you know, this was an era when and, and I think that, um, you know, I do. I, I I don't talk about Tina Turner in my book, but I do talk about Aretha, of course, um, and the way in which um, uh, women were, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't difficult or wasn't a struggle, um, but they were coming to be the, you know, the bosses of their scene. They could um, uh, dictate the terms, you know, where they performed, when, what images they appeared in, uh, you know, who interviewed them and and not those kinds of, of things. Um, and that meant both, you know, retreating to privacy like Carol King did, or I mean, with Tina Turner, I, you know, and I, again, she, you know, all of this is collaborative. I mean, celebrity is, it takes a team. Um, but, you know, she became the star that she, that she wanted to, to become. Well, speaking of uh, sexism in the industry, when Tina Turner went solo, Phil Spector said, anyone could have been Tina Turner. There's only one Ike Turner. So pretty, <laughs> yes. you know, Abuser recognizing abuser, solidarity. Indeed. And, uh, you know, there's a long tradition of 
tyrannical mass male abusers in, well, in the culture at large, but in the musical industry. this album held up for over 50 years and why does it continue to you know sell at such great rates and be streamed at such great rates and you know and have someone like um taylor swift induct taylor swift or oh. <laughs> induct carol king into the rock and roll hall of fame i think it was and yeah, yeah was oh, that cool. was a, i watched that with my mother and actually i'm gonna I sort of give that as an example. So when I, it happened to be the 50th anniversary when I was working on the book. And so there was a bunch of social media um, response uh, to the album and the, the number of uh, posts and reminiscences that were cross-generational seemed to me to be exceptional. Um, in other words, uh, and I, I sort of make a a sort of not a, a ironic aside. So um, Ringo Starr once said that, you know, every few years we're discovered by a new generation of teenage girls, right? That there's a sort of way in which the Beatles have become almost part of our uh musical ontogeny, right? We all go somewhere, somewhere in your past, you have a, mm-hmm. a Beatles stage. Um mm-hmm. But you frequently stop. I mean, my so my daughters, uh, we had this brilliant utopian moment for a few years where we all love the Beatles. And now it's just K-pop with them and they don't they don't listen to that anymore. Um, and I, I one theory I did have is that there's something durable about the way that uh, tapestry passed down generationally, usually through mothers. Um, but to children of both genders, that was the other, you know, mothers to daughters, but also mothers to sons. And it's possible that for families where there's not that much that links them, there's not that much you listen to with your mother or that both you and your mother like, or a, a concert that both you and your mother would go to, or a special on television. I think television has played a role here too. Carol King has had a couple of really key televisual iterations um, at the turn of the millennium and on that have kept her in the, in the um, 
in the public eye. Um, but um, the idea that um, this is something you can treasure cross generation generationally seems to be really significant. And then I guess I will say, I, I mean, I, I tend to shy away from terms about, you know, universality or whatever. Um, but certainly women in particular will say that this is an album they go back to, right? That there's something therapeutic and comforting. It's that you don't listen to it for fun. You listen to it for comfort. You listen to it for reassurance, literally actually as if it's, your friend, right? I mean, in that, and that was the, but we should, we should say that mother was one term that was always used for Carol King, but friend, right? The fans were friends. The cat on the cover is a friend, you know, the idea that uh, she can be your friend and that there's, and this is another thing that the relationship is horizontal, not vertical, right? I mean, you're not going to be David Bowie. I mean, you can be impressed by him. He's mind blowing, um, but he's kind of up there in this weird, you know, dreamlike stratosphere. Uh, whereas Carol King is, you know, when you want to feel less lonely or le- I don't know. And people, and people also actually, people talk about doing their housework, <laughs> right? I talk about domesticity, right? People talk about it also as this comforting soundtrack to uh, domestic life. And I wonder whether there isn't something about that too, that, you know, most of us listen to music still in our homes or, you know, where we live uh, in our domestic environment and nobody's going to say, turn that off. (laughs) Right. So, you know, there's some music you put, you know, I played Led Zeppelin a lot when I was a kid. Uh, My parents were pretty tolerant, but, you know, occasionally it was like, can you turn that off? Can you, you know, whatever, but uh, Carol King's unlikely to piss anyone off. uh, If you put it on most people that are in the house, then will be unoffended. Not everyone. I, 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 I have to say, um, I have run into a handful of people as I was working on this book that actually, and sometimes it's Joni prefers. There are people who like, they're like in their mind, there's Joni and then there's this, you know, other semi-talented or whatever. Um, but for, on, on the, on the whole, it's still that actually that listenability. Um, sometimes I think of it, you know, like in terms of when, uh, was it Miller or, or, or Bud that was had drinkability. <laughs> and I was like, well, drinkability, is that a good thing? Right? But, but it's sort of that, right? That idea that uh, this is not going to offend you. It's going to please you, uh, when you when you put it on. And you've got to conclude by saying there is something, her songwriting chops just sort of crystallized in that album. The later albums are not as good. I mean, the songs are still solid. Uh, but they're just not as good. Um, and I, I think it, um, yeah, it crystallized something both about her talent and about the, the, the moment that has um, uh, embedded it a little more deeply, uh, not just in history, but as you know, it's somehow into our aesthetic tastes. Oh, you have to 
always wanted a real home with flowers on the windowsill. But if you wanna live in New York City, honey, you know I will. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I never thought I could get satisfaction from just one man. But if We've, you just named a couple of songs, and this is the point in the podcast where we like to um, get to the, the most difficult part now that we've been talking for over an hour, and that <laughs> is to uh, list your top five favorite songs. On this album? On this album. Well, Robert, you want to go first or? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to go first. And I, you know, I, I love so much of, of what we've been talking about. And, this is, you know, I, I think what we're talking about is we're talking about the accessibility of this album and, and all of the handles it has for so many people. And, you know, I, I think that in some ways, I think for some of our listeners, you may be hearing us talk about this album and talking about an album as being accessible. Maybe, maybe you were kind of programmed to automatically push back against that or to say it's not you know, it's not the highest art or it's, you know, this, this can't be a great album because it's, because it's so accessible, you know, all of those things. And I, in some ways it also might sound like if you're listening to this as if we are almost damning the album with faint praise. (laughs) Um, But what I want to say is this, if you take, every one of those huge albums that come out in 1971. There are, I can't think of another album that comes out in 1971 that has this many instantly recognizable songs. Um, and again, we're, we're talking what's going on. We're talking Led Zeppelin's four, like all of these different albums we're talking about that come out this year there's not another album from 1971 that arguably has six songs that you recognize even today, even if it's been, even if you've, even if you're a listener who's never sat down and listened to this album start to finish, you know, half this album simply by being alive in the world. And, and so I think talking about what are the best songs on this, on this album or what are favorite songs of the album, my tendency is almost to go away from the biggest hits because I, I do think that for as immediately recognizable as some of these songs are, I, I think there are songs that are in that kind of second tier on this album that I think are deserving of more respect than they get. So I'm going to start in, in order of how they appear in the album. We typically don't try to rank them one to okay. five. We just go okay. kind of in order, the five in order as to how they appear in the album. I'm going to skip over. I feel the earth move and start with so far away. 
um, which, which is again, one of those songs that, you know, it, it, it was a hit, it, you know, it was, it was a single released, um, but a lesser kind of a lesser single on the album. Um, but, but a song I really like, I really appreciate. So I'm going to start with so far away, followed by it's too late yeah. <laughs> on to side two with you've got a friend. Um, then to where you lead. Will you love me tomorrow? No, let's go. Let's go. You've got a, You've got a friend. You've got a friend. Will you love me tomorrow? And then you make me feel like a natural woman. Um, the, the song on the album that has already, I mean, it's already been a chart topping hit by the time she releases this album. This song's already been a chart topping hit for Aretha Franklin. I like the way Carol King sings this better. And in Aretha, without a doubt, Aretha Franklin has a better voice than Carol King. Aretha Franklin's a better performer than Carol King. But there's something in Carol King's her delivery of this song um, is just so special to me. So those those would be my five. So far away, it's too late. You've got a friend. Will you love me tomorrow? Um, you make me feel like a natural woman. So just in order, I thought we were going to have identical, potentially an identical list uh, for only what would be the second time, but uh, we do not. Um, but I have number one so far away, which I would say is also my favorite. Mm. Probably actually like on the album too. Uh, it's just so good. And there's just some, you know, like, Astral Weeks era Van Morrison instrumentation that's buried in the mix that's there that keeps it really interesting for me. Um, it's too late because uh, it's just such a groovy, you know. That's a great song. Good song. Um, I have uh, Way Over Yonder. Great song. I was thinking of that one. That's a beautiful song. That's a yeah, powerful. that's one where she really leans into the R&B mm-hmm. um, and is assisted by uh, Mary Clayton. Yeah, one of the most famous backup vocalists. She's on the back of Gimme Shelter, yep. and she's singing it back up in uh, every song from that era. Yep. Uh, you know, so what she does on the track is great. Um, and every now and then, like I, I listen to it, and then something catches me where I just want to go to Sly and the Family Stone's "Case Sera. Sera. It's just <laughs> oh, like something yes. that's just no, I can a, hear that. I can hear that. Thanks. Yeah, there's just a little similar, like just just enough for me to be like, I need to listen to Sly next. Um, which I mean, that's that's a testament to her. I, I mm-hmm. you could yeah. say, um, "Will you love me tomorrow?" Again, this is one of the proven songs. Um, this is one of the great songs that. No, ma- no matter the version of it, I'm I'm going to enjoy it because I, I love the song. I love that era. You know, I, I too am nostalgic for that era, but without any reason why. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Uh, this is one of the great songs of all time. Um, yeah, and, and she's great on it, but I believe Mary Clayton's singing on that one too. I think uh, she does her own backup on that. Does she? Mary Clayton is on another song in the, on the album. Yeah, so that I mean, she's on. Yeah, it's great yeah. there. And will you love it tomorrow? By the way, it's um, that's where Joni. That's a Joni and uh, yeah. and James Taylor are on it. Credit on the back of the record as the Mitchell and Taylor Boy and Girl Choir. That's right, choir. Yep. Yeah. 
fun little credit. I don't know if that's to get away from issues of her appearing yeah. on that record. I don't know. Who's, yeah, who's right, so I don't know. Yeah, so nice to, you know, so, I mean, for me, you know, the songs are the two proven hits, the one with Mary Clayton and Joni Mitchell, and, you know, two of the, the, the Stone Cold kind of tapestry tracks, so. So, listener, you've heard my list, you've heard Micaiah's list, now let's hear the list from the guy who literally wrote the book on tapestry. I'm going to be predictable, and and although I, w- I was tempted uh, to, to slip in way over yonder, which has always been one of my favorite songs, but I can't skip, I feel the earth move because my memory, you know, it began the album and I, it, uh, that beginning uh, it always resonates with me. I remember it. It, it sort of echoes through my uh, brain. And as I was um, writing the book, I appreciated it more and more as not just the first song on the album, but the sort of entry into the whole era and the change in her life and the, and the sort of autonomous sexuality that, you know, that, that is so unproblematically and, and vigorously celebrated in the, in the, in the song. So um, I, I don't know whether it's one of, you know, I mean, it's certainly one of the best songs. And as you noted, they're all hits except maybe where you lead. Um, and then it's too late, uh, which, um, is one of those songs that always makes you feel like you're remembering some tragic relationship, even if you don't know which it is. I've actually had people say that they broke up to this song or that <laughs> their girlfriend put it on the record player and, you know, like so actually used to break up. Um, uh, I think you've got a friend is a, is a masterpiece. I mean, and a musical masterpiece. I mean, I, people, it, it sounds so simple and natural that people don't realize that um, uh, it's actually uh, um uh, musically a relatively complicated um, uh, tune. Um, and then, you know, the two, the two great uh, um, uh, old hits from the past, uh, Will You Love Me Tomorrow is, uh, you know, again, it seems like in retrospect, like it opens up a whole new era or uh, sound um, in American popular music. Um, and, um, yeah, you make me feel like a natural woman, but, you know, as you were noting, Rob, I think that, and and I talk about this also the album era, there are lots of albums. Mm. Uh, there are very few albums that are conceived as the perfect use of the amount of time and the two sides you have. It's a very, uh, in some ways an arbitrary platform, right? You've got sort of 20 minutes or so on each side, you've got two sides. There's only a certain amount of music. You can't put one song, right? It's bigger than one song. So you've got to do a number of songs. Um, and how can you make sense of that? How can you make sure not just that all the songs are good, uh, but that they seem to need to appear in this, in, in this order and figure mm-hmm. in, in this way. And uh, once you reduce it, once you, once you, refine your standards to that, there's actually only a handful of great albums, right? There's only a few albums that have really managed that. And, and I think this is one of them. I, you know, I think that this album, it's not just that all the songs are great, um, but they, they flow together perfectly. They feel like they belong uh, in this order. And not only in this order, but on these two sides. I talk about this a little bit too, in terms of the contrast uh, in sort of thematic and musical contrast of, of the two sides.
we've now reached the point where we like to ask our guests to give us a list of your top five albums. This could be <laughs> what you think are the top five best. These could be your top five favorite. These could be top five that you're listening to now. Top five from 1971. Top five from the Laurel Canyon Valley. You know, you can make it about a year, genre, geography, however you want to interpret it. Um, well, I, since I think about, you know, since I, I'm trying to, in a sense, trying to think about an idea of the album era, which partly maps historical significance onto my own aesthetic tastes, right? So uh, Highway 61 Revisited uh, always, um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I am just blown away by it every time. I mean, I never, I'll never get tired of it. It never. Uh, and again, it, it's both. It's I feel like I can rediscover, even though I was only three or four years old, then how mind blowing it must have been to hear it back then, particularly yeah. given, you know, what what Dylan was uh, was known for then. Um, I've got uh, the greatest hits of Leonard Cohen up uh, standing up on my uh, on my desk there, and I've been uh, looking into Leonard Cohen a bit, whose albums are actually uneven. Uh, um, a lot of them. I mean, he's brilliant songwriter, um, but I grew up with that one. My mom used to listen to that one, um, and there's something um, as greatest hits albums go. I'd say it's one of the one of the best of them, um, and. Uh, you know, be at, as greatest hits, the, uh, they're all good. Um, I've got a lot of sort of obvious ones that I that I almost don't want to put in. I won't say Sgt. Pepper. I guess I'll say Revolver um, as the Beatles album that that not only does it for me, but again, seems like after that, everything is different. You know, I mean, like they're just uh, we're moving. They are moving and we are moving uh, into a whole different thing. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to pull something a little bit out of uh, out of the, the uh, you know, more margins, although not necessarily. Uh, there's a riot going on. You mentioned that before. Um, I think that um, Sly and the Family Stone made some of the most amazing albums of that uh, of that era. Um, not, and that one, there's something magical about that one. I don't even know whether it's the, the best of them, but it's uh, it also actually on sort of on the other side of things signifies, I guess, a, a downturn, <laughs> um, uh, a, a, an ending towards things. Um, Tempted to put sticky fingers on there, although no one wants to listen to uh, Round Midnight anymore. My favorite band when I was growing up was Led Zeppelin. <laughs> um, and I, I can't, uh, but, you know, maybe I'll put Led Zeppelin one there just because, you know, when I listened to that, I was like, okay, this is this is all I need. You know, I, I literally, this is all I need, right? If I'm going to make a rock band, I'll just listen to this album over and over again. And then, uh, and you know, it hasn't, I, I don't return to it as much as I do actually the Dylan or, or other stuff. But when I do, um, I'm still blown away. Is that five? That's five. That's five. That's a great, that's a great five. You know, you asked me at a different time. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love it. Well, uh, Lauren, we want to thank you so much for being with us. You know, we we love that you gave us the time, and and we're so excited uh, for this episode to come out. For our listeners, you had you had a book um, that was published under Stanford University Press that has now been released as a paperback called Rebel Publisher. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that paperback that they can get their hands on? 
Absolutely. It's called Rebel Publisher, Grove Press, and the Revolution of the Word, published by Seven Stories Press. And it's a history of a publisher that many baby boomers will remember. Folks might not remember as well, but uh, they published um, Lady Chatterley's Lover. They published William Burroughs. They published Henry Miller. Uh, they published Samuel Beckett. That was a, um, and they, um, I argue that they were the, the sort of, of, publisher of the counterculture um, and were a sort of underappreciated agent and enabler um, of a whole sort of different literary and cultural sensibility uh, during that time, not just in terms of ending censorship. And the, the publisher fought a bunch of, of very notorious legal battles over Lady Chatterley's Lover, Tropic of Cancer and, um, and, and Naked Lunch, um, but also in terms of uh, bringing in all sorts of new international voices, new experimental voices and experimental drama um, and, uh, and, and fiction um, and uh, really was a... Um, um, uh, a transformative institution. I write sort of as much about institutions as I do about individuals. And uh, Grove Press was uh, one that I wanted to make sure sort of got into the history books. I love it. So our listeners, you want to pick up this book, Rebel Publisher. Uh, as of course, it's available where books are sold, but we would encourage you to order that from your local independent uh, book retailer. Hey, well, we so appreciate the time. We're going to let you go, but thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, you guys. This is really a, a, just a pleasure. Take care. Thanks so much. Rob, I'll, I will be honest about me selecting tapestry this season. I think more than any album this season, this has been maybe the one that is the most out of obligation. Hmm. Um, as in like, yes, this is like a classic album. If we're going to make a list, we're going to have to have tapestry. So I'm, I'm going to put on tapestry. It's just like, I, I acknowledge that Carol King is a very important songwriter. And at this point in her career, very important singer and performer um so and for the year 1971 this is one of the kind of crowning achievements even though you know we did an episode it's not in my top 10 for 1971 mm -hmm. um maybe not 15 i don't know i haven't made that list in a while um yeah so for me this is this is a, an obligation pick um but that being said i'm not I have like no regrets. I have no hesitation. Mm -hmm. um, but I, but I, I want to be upfront and say that this is for me uh, pretty ob obligatory, even though I, I recognize it and I recognize her for all of the great, great things that, you know, can be said about her and this record. Uh, and I, and I agree with all of it, yeah. um, but I just personally don't have the affection that typically comes you know, um, with this album. I love this album. And again, I, I have, I have a personal relationship, personal connection to this album, but I, I will say, I, I don't think that for me, this is not an obligatory pick. This is, this is in my personal top 100. This is not in my personal top 50. And if I'm honest, I think this is an album ranked too high by Rolling Stone. Hmm. Um, 
I think without a doubt, this is a top 100 album of all time. Mm-hmm. My expectation is by the time we have a hundred albums on our list, this will be a bottom 25 album. Bottom 25. I mean, I, I believe that just based on how I, cause we rank it for our listeners. We each make what we think are the best, you know, as best as we can try to like eliminate bias and kind of try to empirically decide best albums. And then we also do a list of our favorite albums. And then we can kind of combine those to see what, you know, our ranking is going to look like. First Mm -hmm. we did our top 25 and soon we're going to do our top 50. And so based on where I'm going to put it for favorites, it's going to be pretty low. Yeah, um, well, that, that's I, what I'm thinking about. So for me, in terms of favorites, it's it's probably sixty five to sixty to sixty five in that range. In terms of my top one hundred personal favorites, mm-hmm. I think in terms of best albums of all time, I think it's in that fifty to seventy range in terms of best all time. Mm-hmm. And so then thinking about that's also probably where you're likely to put it for best and then favorites is going to be very low for you. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that kind of 70 to 80 range is where it's likely to end up on our list. Um, and, and you know what? I, I think that's a good place for it. Um, but I still think, I still think this is a top 100 album. If, if you want, if you want the masterclass in pop songwriting and pop melody writing, here you go. Yeah. And the thing is with, with these songs, you know, she, she comes from a songwriting background that where, you know, publisher is king in the music Mm -hmm. industry, you know? So like, that's where you make all your money. So you would write a song for a bunch of people to sing. And a lot of people sung a lot of her songs. Mm-hmm. and still do you know so what tapestry gives you is a blueprint it is a template you know it's more like um in the music industry now when someone writes a song and then they they sing a guide vocal and then like the singer of the records like okay listen to this this is how the song goes go you know there there is a little bit of this because the the instruments are really toned down you know, it it is something to where it's just like, I mean, every song on there is just like made for, for now. It's just like, all right, any American Idol or voice contestant, like take the song and just rock it. Like do whatever you want with it. There's, mm-hmm. there's a flexibility with the songs because of the songwriting that if you, if Van Morrison want to pick one of these up, turn up the horns and do the, uh, the blue eyed soul version of it. Easily done. If the band wants to do uh, one of these songs, which there, there are kind of songs that kind of sound reminiscent of the band. They could do it. Yeah. You know, if, if Joan Baez wanted to pick up one of these songs, she could do, it. you know, so there's a flexibility with all these songs that they could fit any style if needed. And that's the mm-hmm. kind of songwriter that she is, that she's writing so that multiple people can sing it. And so that's what this album offers that anyone in a, in a punk band, an old, an old country band, you know, uh, any kind of rock band, if, if you want to sample things in hip hop or if you're interested in R&B, this is a well to draw from. She, she, she gives you enough room to where you can do that, to where if you want to cover it, you can make it your own. If you wanted to, to sample it, right, you could use it and your song wouldn't be, you know, the, the sample wouldn't run the song. 
right? It's another tool for you to use. I think that's kind of a strength from a songwriter perspective. And I think it is writers and songwriters who she appeals to largely. I think that's kind of a larger part of the appeal of the songs on the record. Without a doubt, one of the all-time great songwriters. I mean, look at the numbers. Yeah, and, and, so, and so I do think the, the obligatory nature of, of what you're talking about, I, I think is fair. But it would, it, it, you know, again, h- how do you have a list of great albums without having one of the all-time great songwriters? Um, and, and, and not just all, one of the all-time great songwriters, but one of the all-time great songwriters who put together all of that on this album. And I love that we talked about what a beautifully sequenced album this is. Like an, an album that really does make the most of its time. You know, you get, you get a, you know, and I know you're a fan of, of that, you know, that the, the, Equal the, the attention spe- you know, yeah, side. like six side, okay. six songs on each side, you know, you're in and you're out. Um, you know, look, it's, it, this, <laughs> This is an album that goes down smooth. Yeah, it is, it is a very agreeable and unoffensive album um, that is just nothing but, but pure hits. I mean, that, that, that's, that's what it is. And that's what her whole career is. You know, up to this point, I mean, she is just turning out hits. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so, Micaiah, you've already kind of alluded to this, but let me ask it point blank. Does this album go on our list? Yes. Yes, I believe that it does. Even though I'm, I'm doing it more out of obligation. It's a great set of songs. Um, she performs them beautifully. Um, it's not one that I love, but I, I think that, you know, we lose credibility if we don't have it represented. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with, I, I agree with your conclusions on all of that. I don't know if I come from the same place, but I, but we we arrive at the same location, which is that Carol King's Tapestry is going on our list. Yes. Well, listener, what everyone's do you mom can rejoice. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? What does your mom think about uh, about this episode? Um, it, does Carol King's Tapestry deserve to be a top one hundred album of all time? Is it a top one hundred album of all time? Let us know. Reach out to us on social media. You can reach us out. You can reach out to us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at you forgot one. You can find us on Twitter at you forgot one pod. You can find us on the web at you forgot one.com And Micaiah. If someone's listening on any of their preferred podcasting platforms, what should they do? You should like follow subscribe, whatever it is that, you know, your platform, you know, ask of you when it comes to following the show, we only have so many episodes left and then we're going to go into our bonus episodes. And if you want those loaded up on your device right away, best thing to do is to have, you know, already be subscribed or followed or liking it on wherever you're listening to it. Um, also, if you want to help out the show uh, rate and review it, um, that would really um, help us out a whole lot and help other people find the show. Well, listener, we'll see you next week. Looking out on the morning rain I used to feel uninspired And when I knew I'd have to face another day 
Was in the lost 